going on guys? Welcome back to the show. Today I'm gonna walk you through how I set up my fat loss phase and answer a lot of really good questions from you guys about, you know, how do I manage social life and hunger and what, you know, what things about my life am I gonna change? But before we start, I'm not you. And what I do is not necessarily what you should do. And I'm always torn as to whether or not I should use myself as an example because I don't want you to copy someone else, let alone me, let alone a 30 year old fitness professional with no kids. Like that's probably not your situation. And that means that there are gonna be some things that I do that you might not wanna do. Um, and that's okay. And so I, I, knowing that, I'm, I'm gonna make sure to add as much helpful context as I can and let you in on you know the decision-making process and, and maybe why I choose something and why that might not be the right choice for you. Um, and so hopefully you can use that context to apply it to your own situation. So first question is, are you nervous about anything? And I chose this one first because the truth is, I have you know some anxiety about this, just like everybody does, going into a cut, going into a gain. Like I'm not immune to those feelings. I'm on the tail end of 18 months of gaining. I haven't been hungry in 18 months. I'm nervous about being hungry. I don't wanna be hungry. My relationship with food right now, my body and training is at an all-time high. My life is at an all-time high. My body weight is also at an all-time high. And so just recognizing that those, those things can all happen in conjunction and that life is just way better with more food across the board. Yeah, I'm not my absolute leanest right now, but shit, if you wanna grab a beer and a slice of pizza, I got calories for it. And I'm, I'm fine with it. And I don't mind my body weight going up. It was part of the plan. And so it, it has created this environment where, man, my life is good. And so you might ask, okay, why, why are you even cutting then? Uh, yeah, Jenna's cutting. And if I'm bulking and Jenna's cutting, man, that's gonna be miserable for both of us. And I do think that if I'm gonna be helping people with body composition, which is just one of the things that I do, shit, I should be doing it from time to time. So I should be hungry and practice doing a deficit and practice intentional weight gain here and there. I'm not saying every coach is gonna feel the same way. That's how I feel. I feel like I want to remain in touch here and there with what my clients are going through. And I don't wanna talk about hunger like it's something I haven't felt in years, you know? And so occasionally I want to make sure that I'm in tune with what's going on so I can speak about it a little bit more firsthand experience. Um, so, you know, every couple of years, every I will do gaining and cutting, um, and then maybe spend a long time in maintenance and then go back to gaining and cutting. And it's just something I want to stay in touch with here and there. So listen, I'm nervous about being hungry, just like everybody else. I'm also nervous about getting hooked on being lean. And here's the deal, like being lean, you look at a picture, it's cool. It isn't, there's no, in no way it's not. You look at a picture, you look really lean, you guys see striations or whatever, like, that's cool, and I've been there. I have pictures of myself super lean, and guess what? They're super cool. There's a my before picture of uh, before my bulk, like 179 pounds. Like for reference, I'm 211 right now. Like I was shredded, and it was cool. But guess what? My life is a fucking zillion times better right now. And so I'm a little bit nervous about getting lean and and you know subconsciously having quote unquote being lean jump up my my hierarchy of importance, uh, and I want to catch myself if that's happening. I don't want being lean to start jumping up my priority list because the truth is like, you know, my relationship with food, my relationship with my body, my relationship with my training, my my uh, ability to be inclusive with my food, like all this stuff has is at an all time high and I'm gonna want this back. And so cutting, fine, no problem. I'm viewing it as a short term, which we'll talk about soon. Um, but yeah, I'm nervous about getting hooked on being lean. I don't want that to happen. And so if I catch myself, you know, starting to more highly value how I look in place of, you know, biofeedback that's telling me you feel like shit and, you know, sacrifices in maybe some social life or like, I don't want those trade-offs. And so 
what I've learned over the last several years is to be super cognizant of those trade-offs. And, 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 and I know I'm not chasing a leaner body for a happier life. Like, it's just not how that works. Like, it's very likely that your leanest body is not your happiest life. Um, and so I'll be super cognizant of if I reach a point where that trade-off is no longer creating my best life. And I think that that's a, a theme that you'll see throughout this podcast is like the trade-offs. Like, what are the trade-offs of doing certain things? And it's important to be cognizant of, is this worth what it costs? And if at any point it's just not then you're very welcome to not do this. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. So first question, second question, sorry. How do you go about setting your calories? How do I go about setting my calories? Well, listen, first and foremost, avoid analysis paralysis. Like the most important thing is just get freaking started. Take an educated guess and just get started. The data is gonna, the data and how you feel is going to tell you everything you need to know. And so anywhere from like a 15 to, you know, 25, 30% deficit can be reasonable. And so, you know, First, establishing maintenance is important because how the hell are you going to do a 15 to 30% deficit without knowing what maintenance is? So I've been tracking my calories in a surplus for enough time where I have a decent idea of where maintenance might be, right? I don't know for sure, but a decent idea of where it might be. And then I can subtract, you know, 15 to 30%, maybe, you know, three to 800 calories off of that and get started. I'm not... I'm not thinking that this initial calorie amount that I'm starting with is going to be this be all end all. I'm just going to ride off into the sunset. Like adjustments are probably going to have to be made. It's not going to be perfect the first time around. So just get started. Um, and so you, you can start a little bit more aggressive or a little bit more conservative, right? You 15 to 30%. Once you have a decent idea of where maintenance is, let's say you're ma- you're, you've, you've uh, decided your maintenance is like something like 2,300 calories. Like, you know, you could start at, 1900, 2000, right? You could start a little bit more conservative or you could start a little bit more aggressive. You could be like, okay, screw this. I'm not going to waste time. I'm going to just jump into something that I know for sure is a deficit. I'm going to go, you know, 1700 calories or whatever. And I think the the pros of being more conservative is it's pretty simple. More, more conservative means more calories. More calories means less hunger and less discomfort and more inclusive social life and less uh, rattling your current life, right? Less changes from your current life because less changes to your calories, that's the pros. But guess what? The cons of being more conservative is less fat loss. And so, okay, that, that I say I can take more comfort and less fat loss, or I can take less comfort and more fat loss. And I think that there's, so I'll, the, I think that I lean a, a little bit more towards the aggressive side. I'm not saying starving people to death. Of course not. But, you know, once you go into a deficit, you kind of want to see some form of, of a result. And if you tiptoe the line of what might be a deficit and might be maintenance, and you spend three weeks there and you're three weeks mentally into a deficit, you haven't lost much weight, like it's kind of disheartening. And so I think starting off of with a calorie amount that you think is for sure a deficit um, is probably better off than something that might not be a deficit, right? And if you're going to start conservative, which I'll, I'll tell you right now, I'm going to start a little bit more conservative. And I just gave you a good reasoning for why a, a little bit more aggressive might be better. But the truth is, man, I'm not in a rush and I'm okay with this going really slow. Um, and I also understand that if you're going to start a little bit conservative with your calories, you're probably going to be, or at least you should be a little bit more aggressive with your adjustments. I'm not going to spend a month, you know, in a, in something that is a conservative deficit that turns out to be maintenance. Like I'm not going to spend a month not losing weight. Like I'm going to look at it, you know, week to week, maybe every two weeks. And if I have two weeks of really perfect adherence, and we'll talk about making adjustments a little bit more specific later. But if I have two weeks of perfect adherence and no fat loss, like I'm probably going to at least consider going lower. And so if you're more conservative, 
That's fine. You don't like this idea of what you set your calories to start doesn't need to consume you. Set your calories, track the data, and let the data tell you what to do. And if you track your calories and you're a little bit on the more conservative side and nothing happens for two weeks, then consider making an adjustment. Don't stay there for six weeks, right? There's something independently fatiguing about trying to lose weight. If you're trying to lose weight, you might as well actually freaking lose weight. Because even if, you know, the difference between losing weight and not losing weight might be like two, 300 calories. And it might be more meat, more a better ratio of comfort for speed or discomfort for speed if you went a little bit more aggressive. But I'm going to be a little bit more conservative to start. And then I'll be a little bit more aggressive with my adjustments. I'm not going to, you know, be sitting here, you know, at a, a tiny deficit that turns out to be maintenance forever. I'm going to wait two weeks and see how it goes. Um, cool. Nice. I also think, sorry, last touch on, last point on that now that it's coming to mind. It's like, like most people are, you know, I think it's underrated. People always talk about dieting on as many calories as you can. I don't know about that. Now I'm, now I'm tangenting here, but I don't know about that. If you diet on as many calories as you can, that's the same as saying everybody should go really slow. I don't know if the people who say this really work with people because people seeing progress, tangible progress is quite often the motivation that people need to keep going. Like people can rationalize being uncomfortable if they're getting a return on that discomfort. And so this idea of diet on as many calories as you can is synonymous with everybody should go really effing slow. I don't know about that. I think that there are a lot of people out there who are like thrive on actually seeing the scale go down or their clothes fitting better or that progress, that return on their investment and might be more, might be happier rationalizing a little bit more discomfort for more progress. How do you go about setting your protein and does it stay the same given the phases? I keep this one super short. It stays the same for me through all the phases. Don't overthink it. Um, at least 0.8 grams per pound. That's how I phrase it, at least. Because more is cool, but more is not necessarily much better. Um, there's a certain, you know, um, a diminishing return after 0.8. And so for me, I usually round up to one gram per pound, not because one gram per pound is special. You know, you, you probably do totally fine with about 0.8 grams per pound, but I like protein and it's never been an issue for me to get over 200 a day. Um, I'm 200 211, 212 pounds. Um, it's, it's just a number for me that is not difficult to hit that I also know is beneficial from a muscle retention standpoint, from a satiety standpoint. And so I think you're totally fine with a, a 0.8. And I, I, what I do with my clients is I'll give them a minimum number and I'll say, hey, let's go at least 0.7 or at least 0.8. And if you naturally, by nature of just your the food choices that you like, you go higher, then that's great, totally fine. Um, but I like having this at least because I wanna get people at least over that threshold of optimal, which in the research is like 1.6 grams per kg is 0.7-ish, 0.77-ish, I think, um, grams per pound. And so set your protein at around that, but view it as a minimum. And if you naturally go higher or you want to go higher in the pursuit of more satiety, great, do it. But get at least to that like 0 0.7, 0 0.8 mark. Cool. Um, I guess while we're here, my go-to proteins right now that I can anticipate I will be eating in my deficit. Um, I usually eat about four meals a day. So we'll talk about that in a second. You know, if I'm not eating out and I'm eating all my meals at home that day, it's usually gonna look like, Yo Greek yogurt for one meal or for one protein source at one meal, uh, whey, a, a shake for another meal, eggs and egg whites for another meal and chicken or salmon or some meat product, you know, some lean ground beef, something like that. Um, I've been 
absolutely devouring these Chobani Complete yogurts. Uh, you know, I'm not sponsored by Chobani. My, my best friend does work for Chobani, though. Um, but they're delicious. Uh, 15 grams of protein, 120 calories. Uh, the fruit's kind of, like, mixed in. It's not like this weird gooey fruit at the bottom thing. Um, and they're delicious. They have a little bit of fiber. Um some added probiotics, but whatever, not really likely anything that makes a meaningful difference. But yeah, those are my go-to proteins, Greek yogurt, uh, protein shake, eggs, egg whites. And, you know, at dinner, I'll usually have some form of meat product, chicken, salmon, fish, whatever. Uh, chicken, salmon, beef, turkey. Yeah, something like that. Cool. Next, why are you not counting all the macros? Let's keep it simple here. For body comp, once calories and protein are met, your carb to fat ratio will not have any meaningful effect on your body composition, your fat loss, your muscle retention, right? Calories over the long, long haul, calories in, calories out, energy balance is going to decide fat loss or weight loss. And your protein number in conjunction with your training stimulus is going to decide your muscle retention or your muscle growth. Well, isn't that what body composition changes is? It's cha uh, body composition changes are, um, there are changes in body fat and this maintenance or the gaining of muscle mass. And so protein and calories really do the trick. And truthfully, I would not survive counting all the macros. Anybody who's ever counted all the macros knows this scenario at the end of the day when they have this weird fucking assortment of macros and they make this weird Frankenstein meal at the end of the day with like, I got nine grams of fat and 18 grams of carbs and six grams of protein. So I make this rice cake with cottage cheese and olive oil. Like it's this weird fucking Frankenstein meal because you're thinking, oh, I have to eat, hit each of these macros perfectly. I don't want that. I'd rather me, my clients, everybody who's not a professional athlete or a bodybuilder, like uh, get to a point at the end of the day where they're like, okay, maybe I have 10 grams of protein left and 200 calories. And you can do anything with that. It's way more flexible. It costs way less mental energy. It's likely way more sustainable. Uh, and so you would have, I would love to hear somebody's defense for counting all the macros. Somebody who isn't a professional athlete or bodybuilder, let's say, you know, or, or endurance athlete, let's say. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear that. I think that it's, it's a tough argument to make. And if you're counting all the macros, you know, taking people on, coaching people, one of the most, you know, one of the things I really enjoy doing is taking people who count the macros, shifting over to ca uh, calories and protein and seeing how much more they enjoy their life and thus are able to potentially even succeed better in body composition goals. Cool, next how are you going to assess progress and what is your target rate of loss? First, there's no timeline. I, I can lose four pounds in the next 12 weeks and still be solid progress. I'm not rushing to a competition or photo shoot or give a shit if I'm fucking shredded by summer. Like your timeline is likely getting in your way. This idea that it needs to be done by a certain time. Like it's getting in the way of you being able to live on the day to day because you're thinking about uh, how does today reference needing to be eight pounds down by next month for Billy Bob's hoedown, like, man, can sometimes having a target goal out in mind, a vacation or something, I think some people do well with having some form of, you know, booking themselves, a, you know, whatever, a vacation at the end of things or some some form of end to the fat loss phase that warrants them pushing a little bit harder or, you know, uh, adhering a little bit better. But I just don't know if that's great for, like, massive long-term fat loss. Like what happens when you get back from that vacation? Do you need a new, another light at the end of the tunnel? And so there's no timeline. It's just like your timeline is getting in your way. Your timeline's getting in your way and your comparison to others is getting in your way. What fucking Susan in accounting did in her first six weeks versus what you did in your first six weeks, who cares? Don't You don't envy the person who lost 30 pounds in 30 days. You, you envy the person who lost, you know, uh, 30 pounds in a year and kept it off for five years. Like be that person. Uh, be the person who you know, 
focuses on his or her nutrition for a year or two and makes an actual lifelong change and maintains their progress. Like, don't envy the fucking person who, don't envy the lottery winner. You know what I mean? Don't envy that person. Like, envy the person who lost or, or executed. I'm not, I'm not even talking about weight loss. Who cares? Like, execute, uh, envy the person who actually made sustainable changes long-term, actually maintained their fat loss. And it's unfortunate because that isn't what's highlighted in our industry. That's not what you see on a magazine cover or on Instagram or even transformation photos. And so we find ourselves comparing ourselves to these uh, anomalies that actually divert us from what we actually want, which is you don't want to lose 30 pounds in 30 days. You want to lose 30 pounds in a, whatever, in a year and keep it off forever, right? That's really what your goal is. So for me, my target rate of gain, which again is a rate of loss is pretty flexible. I'm not too, I don't have my heart set on this. We're going to see how it goes, but it's about 0.5 to 1% of my body weight per week. So 0.5 would be, let's say one pound, 1% would be, or uh, would be two pounds. So one to two pounds a week. Shit, 1% of your body weight per week is super fast. It's possible, but it's super fast. And it's that's gotta be very intentional. And it's likely a very large deficit. You know, technically it's a thousand calorie deficit per day. Um, so I'm gonna be aiming more towards that 0.5% which is, you know, on average about a pound a week. And I think on average is the important thing here because some weeks it's not gonna go down. Even if I'm doing everything right, like prepare yourself for that. Prepare yourself for, I did everything right and this week still nothing happened. That's going to happen. It is literally going to happen. And be prepared for the weeks you don't do everything right and your weight doesn't go down or it goes up. Like be prepared for a non-linear process, right? Prepare yourself for daily fluctuations. Prepare yourself for weeks in which you do everything right and the scale doesn't go down. I'm gonna take daily, I'm gonna weigh daily, I'm gonna use weekly averages, and I'm gonna assess a trend monthly. And so I posted on my story this morning, I weighed in again for the second time, whatever, and I posted it, and I thought to myself, like, posting it, this is kind of weird, because I would never, ever actually even look at the weight. I would never be like, oh, I'm up two pounds, 0.2, down 0.6, up 0.4, like, who gives a shit? None of these individual weigh-ins mean anything at all. If you have a Bluetooth scale, just step on, look up, count to 10, get off and go on with your day and assess the seven day average, right? Like I would never log my weight and be like, up, I'm up 0.2, that's great. Or up, I'm up, down 0.4, that sucks. Like these things just don't mean anything. The fluctuations on a day-to-day -day cannot command your emotion and dictate your actions for the day. They don't mean anything. Judge, first of all, judging even week to week on averages might be too soon. Judge week to week and month to month, you know, uh, March 1st to April 1st, have you lost weight? Yes, that's a trend. You know, day-to-day -day is going to just send your emotions into turmoil. Don't do it. Um, I'm going to take monthly photos and maybe measurements. I know monthly photos and measurements are awesome, but I also know that if I go on, the, if I go three weeks with no scale changes, it's unlikely much is happening. Everyone, a lot of the industries, like, yeah, you know, if if the scale's not moving and measurements are down and then you're on the right track, like totally, if your measurements are going down, uh, but your scale is not, like you're totally on the right track and do a lot of people, well, let me rephrase, do some people go through that experience? Of course. And what's happening there is body recomposition. So this can often happen for people who haven't, you know, are not experienced trainees and they're lifting for the first time and they can be putting on muscle and losing fat, which would cause a decrease in inches without the scale going down much. That's totally possible. I'm not that, I'm not that person. I've been lifting for a fucking decade. Like I know that if I go three weeks with no scale movement, that's very unlikely my my uh, my measurements are gonna be changed. And even if they are changed by a tiny bit, oof, I don't know, 
three weeks with a with a point one difference in my waist, like or point two or, 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 or half an inch, like whatever half an inch would be huge, but like. I don't know. There's some user error where I'm like, okay, point one, like maybe my fucking hands are in a different spot or I'm, I'm way, I'm measuring in a different spot. Like at some point, I don't know how many weeks in a row I would go with no scale changes and hold on to the, a tiny measurement change. Uh, and so for me, I know that if I go three weeks on the scale with no change, it's unlikely much is happening. And so measurements are cool because I think long-term, like, like every quarter, like every three to six months comparing them is really awesome. Um, but yeah, if you're looking to lose, you know, more than 20 pounds, let's say, it's likely that you're going to need scale reductions to really get there. I'm not saying that scale is all that matters. I'm just saying like uh, this scenario where the scale doesn't move, but your measurements make insane changes. Geez, that's that's quite an anomaly. I mean, it's very possible that the scale doesn't move as much as the, mes- as the measurements do at certain parts um, because you're doing body recomposition, but body recomposition is mostly available to people who haven't trained uh, you know, who have either never trained or are coming off a layoff and regaining muscle that they once had, or if you're on steroids, or if you're, you know, finally putting everything together. And so it's possible for some people, i thinking to myself that I have clients who are in this position who didn't see the scale move much over the course of six months, but look, you know, entirely different and have different measurements, totally. But if you're listening to this and you have a decent amount of weight to lose, like, yeah, I don't know if that's gonna happen too often. Cool. Are you gonna count your steps? Yes. I did not count my steps at all in a gaining phase. Uh, I walk Callie, my dog, as often as she needs to be walked, and I'm relatively active. I like being outside. You know, we go for long walks. I honestly have no idea where my steps are. And (laughs) that means I'm not going to set myself with too ambitious of a goal at first. I'm probably going to start in that seven to 8,000 per day range uh, on average. I think that that's important on average. I'm going to track them on a weekly scale. I know there are going to be some days where I get eight, nine, 10, 11,000. Some days I get four or 5,000 when I'm, you know, doing a little bit more work, let's say. Um, and, you know, the truth is like, <sighs> I absolutely loathe intentional, ca- intentional cardio. And it's only possible for me to get so many steps throughout the day. Like, me me thinking that I'm going to get 13, 14, 15,000 steps a day on average is not going to happen. That is something, or let me rephrase. That's not something I'm going to do. I'm choosing that that's not possible. Of course, I could just go walk around outside all day, but my life won't allow for that. So I'm going to be realistic about what I can sustain. Now, I'm big on accepting the fact that what you do in fat loss doesn't need to be sustainable forever. It doesn't need to be sustainable forever but I'm going to start with something that could be sustainable forever and, and move it into a, you know, sustainable for now category if I have to. So I'll probably start with seven to 8,000 per day, which is something I think on average I can do. And if it has to go up, you know, to eight, nine, 10, 11 in the pursuit of fat loss for the, you know, the short to medium term, like I'm okay with that, but I'm going to start conservative, same with the weights, same with my uh, calories and I'll make aggressive adjustments if I need to, but I'm going to see how things go. It's like, there's no harm in, there's no harm for me because I'm choosing to be a little bit more conservative at the start to take everything and and see if I can get some easy fat loss in the beginning and save some of those more difficult, you know, maybe lower calories, maybe higher steps, save that for when it's really necessary. Now, I don't think that that's right for everybody. I think there are going to be people who are going to do better if they see not fast progress, but tangible progress right at the start and don't need to wait two weeks of data to be like, did anything happen? And so I actually think that most people would do better with that, not being too conservative, right? I don't, I, I'm fine with two weeks of no fat loss because I cho- chose to be conservative, but shit, 
I think most people are going to do better seeing some form of tangible progress right at the get-go. And so not being insanely conservative and, and dropping your calories by 50 per, per two weeks, you know, and trying to always eat as many calories as possible and go as slow as possible. I don't think that's right for everybody. So cool. Um, you know, now that I'm thinking about this, people ask all the time, how much cardio should I do in a cut? First of all, it's freaking personal. Like, you know, uh, your movement is one, is is indirectly or directly one part of the calories in, calories out equation. And so people are like, how many, how much cardio should I do in a cut? And it's like, well, it's also in relation to the calories that you're eating uh, or how much cardio should you, do, should you do in a cut? It's also in relation to how many calories you're eating. And so if you are like, it's just such an interesting question because it's the amount that you can do consistently, at least during your cut. And an amount that you, you know, kind of semi enjoy. And the truth is you might be only able to or prefer doing low steps. And guess what? If you can only get 6,000 steps, guess what? You're going to have to eat less because that's less calories burned and thus less calories eaten if you want to maintain a similar deficit. So, you know, people are like, how much calories, how much cardio should I do in a, in a, in a cut? And I'm like, how much do you like doing? How much can you reasonably sustain? Uh, and start with that and see if it's enough. And if it's not enough, then consider going up in steps, right? Increasing calories out or decreasing calories down, uh, in, and you always have those two options, um, at your disposal. And so it's very personal. It's not like, it's not like there's some blanket, like, yeah, you got to do three times 30 minutes on the elliptical. Like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, what, what if I don't do that, but I eat a little bit less? Like, of course that would work. What if you do double that, but you eat a little bit more? Of course that would work. Um, and so it's about a trade-off that everyone's allowed to make for themselves. Like you might get more food for more steps. Um, but you also might not be able to get more steps. I think some people are just capped out at how much time they can spend, spend doing stuff like this. Um, cool. Next. Oh man, we're already 25 minutes. Um, all right, be a little bit quicker on the on the back end here. What are you going to change about your lifestyle to adhere better? And how will you handle hunger? This is the best question. I mean, this is the important question. And the first thing I'm gonna say is, it's okay to make changes to your life to adhere better to your lower calories in the short term for fat loss. There's nothing disordered about changing parts about your life to adhere better to lower calories. If I cut your pay by 20%, right? Your boss cuts your pay by 20%. Are you gonna change your spending habits? For damn certain you are, are you kidding? Like, like no more, you know, crazy nights out, no more buying a table at the club. Like you're getting paid less and you're gonna change your spending habits, right? And, and how much you change them is obviously individual, but like it seems totally reasonable to me that you would change your spending habits if you got less money. And so first, you're allowed to make changes. That's the first thing. And for me, let's talk about hunger. How am I going to change my lifestyle to adhere better, right? And, and maybe fight hunger a little bit better. First is recognizing that this shit is voluntary. This is voluntary. I'm choosing to do this. I know that being hungry is going to happen. Being hungry is okay. I'm not dying. Like being hungry isn't the end of the world. I'm not saying it's great and super fun and... It's not, but it's okay to be occasionally hungry. It's not gonna be the end of the world. And to some degree, it's likely necessary if your goal is fat loss. Like you are by definition giving your body less food than it needs. To, to, to ask your body to not respond to that with wanting more food, it doesn't make much sense. So being hungry is okay. Being hungry is going to happen. This is voluntary. You are choosing to do this and it's okay. You're not dying, right? And if at any point the hunger that I'm dealing with isn't worth the return that I'm getting, I'll pull the plug. Like that is where I think most people miss the mark is like 
assess the trade-offs. If you're super freaking hungry and irritable and your life sucks and you really wanna go out with your friends and you really miss your old life and you really hate occasionally turning down food, you really hate eating more salads, like, okay, guess what? You don't wanna do fat loss then. Like, like you don't need to do fat loss. And if the things that you have to do to adhere to your calories aren't things that you want to do and you'd rather not do them, well, shit, don't do them. And so this is always an interesting thought to me. It's like, assess the trade-offs. If it, it, if, if the juice isn't worth the squeeze, don't do it. Cool. Things and other things about my lifestyle that I might change to adhere a little bit better or deal with hunger. Like for me, I will naturally push my first meal back later in the day. I'm not intermittent fasting on some strict schedule. I'm essentially intermittent fasting is what I'm doing. I'm going to push my first meal back later in the day. I know that I will do that. Um, why will I do that? Well, one, I know that a slightly smaller feeding window probably helps me maximize uh, or minimize hunger across the day. Second, I'm just not usually super hungry early in the morning. When I was in a surplus breakfast every single day, because if I did not have breakfast, it, the opposite would happen. I needed to extend my feeding window so that I could afford to get, uh, you know, so I, I could actually fit in as many calories as I needed. But I'm gonna shrink my feeding window. I'm not gonna fucking be like watching the clock and oh, it's it's 10.01, now I can eat. It's like, I will let hunger come to me, but I will also let hours go by if it does not come and push my first meal back later. Um, now, I don't think this is perfect for everybody. I think some people take it super far and they get super strict. And if it's 9.58 and they're not supposed to eat till 10, they won't eat and that that's pretty fucked. Uh, and I would avoid feeling, you know, super restrictive and making this some crazy strict margins where you need to eat in this exact window or something bad's gonna happen. It's not true. And if you're hungry for breakfast one morning, you're allowed to lean into it. Um, but yeah, I think... I think we're pretty clear on in the research that like shrinking your feeding window can be helpful for, you know, minimizing hunger across a 24 hour cycle. Um, and so I'll very gently lean into whatever my intuition says and my intuition, you know, how I naturally feel isn't hungry first thing in the morning. Um, the only time I would probably eat first thing in the morning is if I'm training early. I, I listen again, there's nothing wrong with training fasted. I just fucking hate it. Um, I just feel noticeably less strong. Um, which is also not the case for everybody. A lot of people feel just as strong. And the truth is, if you're doing strength and hypertrophy training, you don't need a ton of, you don't need a super perfect pre-workout meal to get through a fucking 45 to 60 minute strength or hypertrophy workout. Like you're gonna be fine. Um, just personal preference. Um, cool. I've been having dessert every night, pretty much in the surplus. And so I'm probably gonna not do that. <laughs> I probably, you know, I've been ending the day with like four or 500 calories and needing, you know, fucking whatever, a dessert every night to get to my surplus calories. Well, it's a pretty easy thing for me to just not do that. And there goes 4,500 calories a day. So definitely something I'm going to, you know, maybe uh, switch from uh, some ice cream to like a Yasso uh, bar, mint chocolate chips fire, by the way, only hundred calories, feels kind of nice. And if you need that, like, you know, post-dinner treat or whatever, I will at least modify what that is for lower calories. Um, and then people are like, okay, what about my social life? What about like, what do you guys, what do you do to manage your social life? Well, shit, man, we're in quarantine. I don't know anybody who's going out multiple times per week uh, or more. Um, I certainly am not. And the truth is I don't really go out that much. Like go out drinking with my friends or like multiple dinners out at friends and, and restaurants. Like I, I go out at most once a week. Um, we might go out, we might order in, but it's probably about once a week. And the truth is whether you like it or not, eating out more often is going to make fat loss harder. And so you might consider eating out less. 
might consider cooking more. I think that the people don't want to ruffle their social life at all. And I'm not saying you should become a hermit in the pursuit of fat loss, but I am saying that at least consider that those two things might be at odds and maybe it should, you know, consider changing them a little bit. Maybe just even what you order, maybe just less drinks, maybe don't split that dessert. Like I'm not saying you need to do all those things all the time. I'm saying just recognize that it's possible that your social life and your fat loss goals are a little bit at odds and at least wrestle with the trade-offs. I'm not saying you need to make a decision one way or another, but being in denial about it isn't going to help. Um, and, and, and as far as like what I'm eating, man, I will, here's the, here's how things change for me in a fat loss phase. When I go into a fat loss phase, I now am looking at food slightly differently. I'm going to look at it in the same way I always do. It's tasty. It's fuel for my training. It's fuel for building muscle, but it's also a, a certain level of satiety. And so how satiating a food is per calorie is going to just gently inch its way up the hierarchy, not to the most important thing ever and not most, not all, you know, all important, more important than everything else, but it's going to be more important because I am valuing the satiety per calorie ratio of certain foods because shit, I have less food and I want to make sure that I don't feel like shit. Uh, and so if I'm choosing between, uh, you know, uh, a, a baked potato or a pasta, like I'm going to choose the baked potato right now because I know that that potato technically actually, funny enough, the uh, baked potato is the most satiate or a boiled potato technically is the most satiating food period. It scores the highest on the satiety scale. Um, and so I'll, I will more highly rank a food that is more satiating. Now, that isn't the only thing driving my meals. I'm gonna be, you know, choosing food that I like. I'm not gonna be restricting anything that I really want, but man, shit, I'm going to start to at least take note of how satiating a certain food is compared to other foods. Um, awesome. So for me, it looks something like a high protein diet, eating, trying to eat high volume, lots of fruits and vegetables, less liquid calories, and again, more highly valuing foods satiety uh, per calorie, uh, satiety to calorie ratio. Um, and for anybody who doesn't isn't familiar with, uh, like, I guess this that I this thing that I say um, is, uh, you know, when when I take on a client and we're looking at basic meal composition, I think the most important thing that I can give to you as a listener, to a client, whatever, is in terms of meal composition, is starting each meal with a protein and a plant, protein and a plant. And if you do that, a plant being a fruit or a vegetable, if you have every meal that is cir circled around or or based around a protein. And a plant. I don't care. And whatever you do with the rest of the plate, sure, that is less important is what I'm trying to say. If you start with chicken and uh, broccoli, Rob, man, uh, you're probably off to a good start building a nutritious, satiating meal that's high in protein, helps you hit those goals. High in fiber, helps you stay full, good poops, good nutrients. And so you're well on your way to building a helpful meal. And so I think, you know, I will you just more firmly adopt that, even though it's something that's kind of ingrained at this point. It's like every meal starts with a protein and a plant. And, and, and this is tough because it's tough to mimic what people, what, what like people do on Instagram. Like the people that here's the deal, <laughs> the people that make it look easy probably have a life you would fucking hate, right? It's easy. Cause I don't go anywhere. We, I'm we're in quarantine. Like I see my friends occasionally and I already identify as, you know, somebody who kind of, you know, gives a flying fuck about nutrition. And so, uh, you know, if I'm out with friends, nobody gives me shit. I, I live in an environment where I'm in control and I honestly have developed a, 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 an identity of not caring at all what other people think. And that isn't easy to do. Well, that's not true. I don't not care what other people think, but it, I'm not going to let that dictate 
you know, what is important to me at a given time. That doesn't mean I'm always going to order fucking chicken and broccoli at a restaurant or I'm going to bring my food with me to the restaurant. Of course not. But if I don't want to drink, I'm not going to drink. And somebody's saying, oh, come on, have one. Like, I don't care. Like, stop being a dementor. Like, leave me alone. Like, I make my choice. I'm happy. I'm not doing this out of restriction. And that's another, like, good defense when people offer you food. When somebody offers you something you don't want, you don't say, no, 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 I can't. Or, no, 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 I shouldn't. You are inviting them. The, you are inviting the dementors uh, to just suck your soul out from your body. Say instead, I'm good. Let the person know what you really mean. Because when you say I shouldn't, you know, what you're saying is I'd love to, but, you know, there's this external, uh, 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 you know, chain around me and I can't have that, even though I really want to. And I'm sad because I, I want to have it, but I shouldn't. Man, if you say I'm good, what you're relaying to the person is that I hear you and yeah, this piece of cake or whatever would be nice, but actually I'm totally fine not having it. I'm, I'm not like what you want to, you don't want to relate to the person that you are not fine because they are going to be like, oh, cool. So they're not okay. So let me try and help them be okay by pushing them to have this food. You want to relate to them that, hey, I've weighed the pros and cons. I've, I've assessed the trade-offs and right now I just don't really want X thing. Um, so a little tangent there, but I think Honestly, the words we use are important. And if you say, no, I can't, or no, I shouldn't, uh, or no, I'm not eating that right now, like you're inviting the Dementors, these, you know, I call them the live a little Dementors to fucking come out and suck your soul out. Like say, I'm good, I'm good, Randy. Thanks a lot, I'm fine. Um, you know, relay the message that you are in fact totally okay and you are not some, you know, in some crazy state of sadness and restriction. Like you're good, you weighed the pros and cons, you've made a decision, you're fine. Question eight, are you going to do any cardio? So, short answer, no. Uh, I'll start just gently upping my steps. And if at some point that requires intentional cardio, getting on a treadmill, elliptical, whatever, I will. Um, but I don't know if that will be the case. I think at some point after like 10, 11,000 on average per day, I would rather look at my nutrition to move the deficit. Um, but it also depends how lean somebody wants to get. If you need to get really lean, it's likely that steps are going to have to get hot, pretty high where intentional cardio might be a good idea to look at because food getting super low becomes, you know, the worst of the two options. Cool. What is my dieting history? Um, well, in my adult life, I've been 170 and I've been 220. But usually both of those have been intentional and, and I don't really have a history of yo-yo dieting. Uh, and I say that because, you know, decades of yo-yo dieting likely slightly reduces your calorie intake slash requirements at a given body weight. And so, you know, somebody might be like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm also 212 and I also want to lose fat, you know, but maybe you've been doing this for a long time and you've gained and lost, you know, weight several cycles through and maybe that slightly reduced your calories. And that's, that's one of the reasons I'm not going to be like, this is how many calories I'm eating because that's not how many calories you should eat because we come from different backgrounds. We have different genetics. We have different levels of activity, different goals, different preferences of rate of progress. And so there isn't one, your, your choice of calories isn't, isn't this one decision that is based on just one thing. It's based on so many things that we're likely going to differ on. Cool. Um, I guess on the, that note, when when we're talking about, the second part of this question was, uh, do you get a lot of calories? This is a weird way of phrasing it, but the truth is, you know, our metabolisms have a certain amount of adaptability. And what I mean is that, you know, metabolic adaptation, people are familiar with the term, like when you go into a deficit, your metabolism is adapts to the new calories. Essentially, you give your body less food, your body doesn't want to die. Your body thinks this deficit is, you know, leading to famine and death. And so your body 
down-regulates your subconscious movement so that you stay the same body weight. It's basically a defense mechanism against gaining weight. And so your body can adapt downward. The less food you give it, your body can adapt. Now that actually works in both directions. We have metabolic adaptation in, in response to overfeeding, we do. It's just that for the last million years, you know, we've been adapting to less food. Only in the last 50, you know, have we been dealing with overconsumption. And so our metabolic, we're way better at adapting to a deficit than we are adapting to a surplus, you know, as by nature of the fact that like 40% of Americans are obesity. We can very clearly override metabolic adaptation in an upward direction, but it still does happen. And so we all have a certain amount of adaptability. And the, the study that looked at this at first was a, I, think, I believe a metabolic ward study where they actually like fed everybody all the food, very tightly controlled study. And they they assessed everybody's, you know, TDEE, everybody's maintenance calories, and they overfed people by a thousand calories. So everybody was fed on average a thousand calories over their maintenance. And some people lost weight. Think about that. Some people's metabolism upregulated so much that they actually not only, you know, moved a thousand calories more, but they moved more than that and they lost weight. And other people gained more weight than you would expect. So we have on one hand, people adapting like crazy. And on the other hand, we have people actually moving less. So not adapting upward at all, actually <laughs> adapting downward and you know everywhere in between. So we have this wide range of adaptability. My metabolism is adaptive upward. I know that for a fact. If I can, I can maintain my body weight at, you know, within a, a range of like a thousand. And uh, I'm not saying I can eat a thousand over my maintenance and not gain weight, but I'm saying my range of, calories I can eat without anything happening because my body will just freaking adapt to what that is, is pretty wide. And that's not always a good thing. And so just for reference, let's say, for example, my maintenance is 3000. Well, I might need to go up to like 4000 to gain weight, but I might also need to go down to like 2000 or maybe even below to lose weight. And so we have this wide range of adaptability. And so I anticipate because I know my metabolism is quite adaptive upward. I need to eat uh, you know, a lot of food to really see the scale go up. And I think that on the flip side of that, I'm actually going to have to see my calories go pretty dang low, um, which is not going to be fun. And so someone says, okay, why do you probably get a lot of calories? I'm actually not sure that I'm going to. Um, I think I can get a lot of calories at maintenance. I think I can get a lot of calories in a surplus, which by the way, isn't a good thing. Um, it's not fun eating, you know, 4,000 plus calories. Uh, but I also think my calories are going to have to go, relatively speaking, low, lower than maybe somebody else who's my weight age. And again, that's why it's not helpful for me to just spout out how many calories I'm eating. I haven't even started. Who knows if this is an amount of, the amount of calories I'm starting with is actually going to work. So next question, how will I handle going out to eat? Well, all right, let's keep this one. Let's, I want to get this in under an hour here and we got like five more. So how am I going to handle going out to eat? Well, I've been doing this a while. So my estimating skills are decent. I also, you know, think that I will, you know, my estimating skills will take into account the fact that, you know, for most people underestimate when they eat out. And so I will intentionally overestimate to account for my, our inherent, you know, tendency to underestimate. But more importantly, I will accept that it won't be perfect. It will not be perfect. I will not be 100% accurate. I'd rather, and here's the deal, I don't want you to spend nine hours, like, breaking down the meal into each you know, uh, individual ingredient and then estimating it. Like, I don't want you to do that. I'd rather you plug in a generic, let's say you go out, you get chicken parm. I don't want you to be like, okay, one ounce of breadcrumbs, one ounce of chicken or eight ounces of chicken, four ounces of cheese, 
to 150 grams of sauce. Like, I don't know if I really want, and that's actually not even a difficult one. That one you actually could uh, itemize if you wanted to, but like, I'd rather you plug in chicken, parm, enter. And then a bunch of entries come up, you pick one, maybe you multiply it by 1.2 just to overestimate, you use your intuition and you move the hell on with your life. I want you to find the right balance of trying hard to make it close to accurate without losing your mind, right? I'd rather you plug in a generic option and overestimate than try to break it down, or try and break down the meal into each ingredient and spend a ton of time doing that because at the end of the day, it's not going to be perfect anyway. So let's get pretty close and let's move on with our lives. And I don't want it to cost you a lot of people quit tracking or don't even try because they're like, well, when I go out to eat, it all goes to shit. It shouldn't. Let's find a really easy way to get you kind of close and then let's probably overestimate and let's move on with our lives. Um, and plus, like I said, I don't eat that. I don't, I don't eat out that much. So spending all these like quote unquote, like spending all my emotional fucks on this seems like a waste of time because man, it's not like if I'm off by a couple hundred calories, it's not the end of the world. You know, it might be, uh, meaningful if I'm doing this two times a day every week, but doing it once or twice a week, it's really not the end of the world. And if you overestimate, it's probably less of a big deal because, you know, on average, it's probably better for you to be over than under, uh, just overestimating than underestimating. Um, cool. And like I said, truth out, the truth is like eating out very often is going to make it harder. I'm not saying you shouldn't eat out, but I am saying that you do need to accept that. Like if you're eating out, you know, twice a day, every day, like Okay, it's gonna be more difficult. This is something you need to deal with. Next question. Are you afraid that all the time you spent gaining was for naught or was useless? Or another way of phrasing it is like, are you afraid that you you spent 18 months and you actually didn't build that much muscle? Like it was a waste of time. This is a good question. I actually get this one more than I expected. It's like, and my clients too, they'll do a first gaining phase and they're like, I'm so nervous I didn't gain that much muscle. I'm not nervous about this at all. People get so worried about, but, 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 but did I gain enough muscle? It's like, who gives a shit? Did you do your best? Like, if you look back at your gaining phase, did you do your best? Because if you did, you cannot control the outcome. You can't control how much muscle you gain. You control your lifting and your protein intake and your calorie intake and your average weight gain. Like, you can do all of that. And those inputs are the best you can do to ensure muscle growth. And so for the last 18 months, gained 30 pounds, like I lifted hard, my protein was high. Like I'm not thinking twice about, oh my God, I hope I lose weight and I look totally different. First of all, most people after 12 weeks of gaining think they're gonna do a cut and be like, I look totally different. Like, no, you don't. One 12 week cutting uh, gaining phase is not going to build the en enough muscle for you to look totally different. We're talking about months and years of lifting not in a deficit and then cutting and then looking totally different. Like. You know, that's why I'm a bigger fan of doing longer gaining phases and really sinking your teeth into it. It's like, if you do 12 weeks of gaining and then 12 weeks of cutting and you just keep doing that, I don't know. It's unlikely you'll make the kind of progress that you're really after where one day you cut and you're like, wow, I actually really have spent a lot of time building muscle. Um, and so I don't think about this at all. I literally just think, did I do my best? If I did my best, then the outcome that I've received is the best outcome. And I'm also not really worried about it because guess what? Like if you didn't build a lot of muscle, you don't look that different afterwards. You can just get back to gaining afterwards. And this isn't like, what? what is your rush? Like do you, you're like, I get it. You want to see results. You want to see that the gaining, the time you spent gaining has been worthwhile. Um, but what if it isn't? Then what? What if you didn't build that much muscle? Like are you going to then just give up changing your body at all? And which by the way, who cares? You don't need to change your body. Like this is something totally voluntary. Nobody has to do this. But like if you do... I'll tell you right now, if you do 12 weeks of gaining and then 12 weeks of cutting and you get back to the same body weight, like you're not going to look very different. 
you will by definition have more muscle for sure, but you're not gonna look wildly different. And so you need to not be like, well, gaining's not worth it. Well, maybe you need to gain longer. Maybe you need to gain more. Maybe you just need to do this more times. Like, um, I don't know. I never, ever think about that. For 18 months, I never thought, well, man, I hope when I cut, I really look different. It's like, I don't know. Like, why don't I just focus on the inputs and not really focus too much on something I can't control, which is the outcome, right? Once you're eating enough protein, gaining weight at the right rate, one to 2% of your body weight per month, you're lifting intelligently, like in an intelligent program and with enough intensity, shit, that's all you can do. It's literally, and sleeping, you know, seven to nine hours, like that's literally all you can do. And so worrying about the outcome is a, you know, it's it's a waste of your emotions because it's spending emotions, which, you know, you have a finite amount of on something you cannot control. And if you do your cut and you do not, you know, look wildly different and you don't think you built, quote, enough muscle, which is, you have no, nobody has any idea what that even means. Um, what are you going to do then? Just quit and just stop all this altogether. Oh, I guess building muscle is not for me. It's like, first of all, you could totally do that. That'd be fine. Cause again, nobody has to do this, but you could also say, okay, well, we'll probably maintain and maybe get back into the game and build some more muscle. Like, uh, yeah, sorry. Just something that I just don't really think about. I think people get caught up in, uh, get caught up in wondering what's going to happen instead of focusing on, you know, did I, or did I not do my best? All right. Um, geez, there are a lot of questions here. 12 minutes left here. Um, all right. Will I use diet breaks? I'm going to do what I suggest most people do. I'm going to set diet breaks tentatively along the way. And then I will auto-regulate if I get there and, and I don't want to use it, let's say. Um, you know, I'll probably do something like three weeks in a deficit, one week out. And if I get to that one week out, if I get to that diet break, but the scale's moving and I feel fine and, you know, I'll probably not take the diet break unless there's a life event that I really want to have more calories for, for example, you know, or a week of vacation, whatever. Um, so what I would like to do with most clients is like, hey, it's helpful to know, let's say you're running a marathon. It's helpful to know where the drink stops are, where the water break stops are. Does that mean you have to stop and take a water break? No, but I would want to know where they are before the race starts so that I can, you know, once I pass one, I'm like, okay, I got another four miles to the next one. If I need one, I'll take one then. So it's helpful, in my opinion, to have those kind of pit stops, those checkpoints, those little mini lights at the end of the tunnel. And then honestly, if you get there and you're like, Man, I'm not even thirsty, I feel great, I'm at a good pace, I'm running, like you don't need to take one. The truth is you don't need diet breaks. You do not need diet breaks, no matter how much the Matador study tells you you need to, you don't need diet breaks. It's not going to help you retain more lean body mass. It's not going to help you fight metabolic adaptation. Like they are helpful because they break up the diet into more manageable chunks. And I'm not diminishing that, that how helpful that is. That, that is for damn certain helpful. Most people are gonna do way better with breaks than without breaks, for sure. But you taking one week out of a, 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 out of a deficit at maintenance isn't reversing metabolic adaptation. It's giving you a really nice week with more food to get your head right so that you can you know run to the next checkpoint. So yeah, I'm gonna use them. But if I get to that point where it's time for a diet break and I feel fine, like I'm gonna keep going. How long is your deficit going to be? I won't exceed 16 weeks. Um, you know, if I get to 16 weeks, I'll take a maintenance phase of, you know, four to eight weeks and then I'll reassess. Uh, I'm guessing more like eight to 12 weeks. And I'm also guessing that I probably just want to do this once. I'm not sure that I'm going to want to get, like, I think I'm at 211. And the next question is, do you have a, do you have a goal weight? So we can link these two things together. It's like, I have a goal weight-ish, 
and it's probably 200 pounds. That's 11 pounds. And half a percent of my body weight per week would be about a pound a week, which I think I can reasonably do at 211 pounds. You know, if you're 120 pounds, losing a pound a week is about 1% of your body weight. So, you know, per, you know, net body, uh, pound of body uh, weight loss, it's much higher relatively. Um, so uh, I want to get to around 200, not because I'm emotional about that number, not because I think that that number is the be all end all. I think here's the deal. Weight goals are tricky. Like, be flexible. Stop getting emotionally attached to a number. That number isn't a goal because it is the number. Like it, to me, it represents somewhere where I'll probably feel like I want to take a break from dieting. It's probably where I'll be able to fit into back into my genes. You know, I don't care about the number, but it represents a time where I'll, where I'll feel like, where I think I'll feel like I'm just done dieting, where I'm good for now. Um, most people pick a goal weight that totally disregards what it would cost to get there and they obsess over it. You know, if you're 220 pounds, you're like, my goal weight's 160. It's like, okay, like, fine, but like, just keep an open mind, be flexible. What if you get to 180 and life is really great and what it would cost to get to 160 isn't a cost you want to pay. It becomes a disproportionately hard journey from there from there on out and maybe you are fine. But, you know, if you're emotionally attached to 160, then only getting to 160 is the only time you're going to be happy. Well, shit, that's going to be a, a, a tough place mentally, I think. Um, stay flexible. Don't get emotional about the number. It's not that you can't have a goal body weight. You can, but be flexible. Say, I want to get in this range. And if along the way... I find a better balance of a body that I like um, and fitting into my clothes in a way that makes me happy and whatever other aesthetic things that make you happy and an amount of calories. Like people forget this. People are like, yeah, my goal weight's 160. I'm like, okay, what if I told you, you know, 160 would mean going X low, going all the way to, you know, 1500 calories or something like that. And you're like, well, okay, oh, fuck that. People get, it's not just the goal weight. It's like, what is it gonna cost to get there? So stay flexible and keep an open mind. Maybe along the way, you know, I've had plenty of clients who are like, <laughs> think they want to get to a certain goal weight, but like half the way there or, you know, two thirds of the way there, they're like, oh my God, this is what I thought I would feel like and look like at that weight. I'm actually here right now. And so remind yourself that your goal weight is more of a representation of a feeling uh, than it is a specific number that matters. It isn't. Cool. Next question is, doo -doo 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 -doo. will I calorie, will you calorie cycle or use static calories? I will use static calories, basically static calories, meaning eating the same or attempting to eat a very similar calorie range per day. Um, calorie cycling has upsides and downsides, right? Calorie cycling has upsides and downsides. And I'll explain it to you how I explain it to my clients. First of all, calorie cycling is the idea that you can eat, you know, higher some days, lower some days, but as long as you end at the same weekly average, it doesn't matter if you did that with the same calories every day or high and low days. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, two, five days in a deficit, two days refeed, like, and they get very intentional about having high and low days. I find that there's a big downside to that where you spend those five days dreaming about those two days and your food focus actually goes up and your, you know, uh, uh, your, your hedonic eating habits go up. And it, to me, you know, can exacerbate some of those disordered eating patterns where you're in this pseudo binge restrict cycle where you save all your calories for these two days and it becomes some, you know, reframed cheat weekend when in reality it's supposed to be like a productive calorie cycle that allows you to be more adherent. Now, listen, if calorie cycling makes you more adherent, I have plenty of clients who do it, but I will say this very firmly. I think the recognition that calories work on a weekly bank and that you can have some high days and some lower days and still make equally good progress is more important than you intentionally setting high and low days. Like 
I don't care if you set high and low days. I care that you don't freak out when you have a high day because you realize that, hey, this shit works on an average. And just because you had one high day doesn't mean fucking the whole week is ruined. It's not. And so I think it's more important to understand calorie cycling, that calories work on a weekly average, that you can have a high day and it doesn't ruin anything. And you can, you know, budget some calories for for this, uh, for Wednesday and have a little bit less on Thursday. Um, I think that that's totally fine. Now, I do think it also, you know, can, can cause people to, um, I think that that is also a double-edged sword because I have clients who will have a high day and then they know mathematically that they can compensate with low day the following day or several low days the following days. Um, and sometimes those compensatory actions, if done in the right mindset, are totally fine because guess what? Mathematically, it works. If you have a high day, you have 500 calories over one day and the next day, 500 calories under your average, it's totally fine. Still will equal out to the average. But sometimes those compensatory actions can kind of, uh, they can kind of validate a binge because you're like, hey, I can just have 5,000 calories now and I won't eat tomorrow. And you can kind of be like, oh yeah, yeah. You can kind of gamify it too much. Um, so I, I, I caution people who want to use calorie cycling to just make sure that your high days and low days aren't so far apart in calories that it's feeling like a, 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 a an organized binge restrict cycle. Um, and so for me, I'm going to start with the static calories. And if I'm finding that, um, I, I'll just pay attention to, you know, if I would prefer having some higher and some lower days, but truthfully, I just, I just don't know if I would. I already know that I get, I'm feeling a little anxious just talking about it, that if I had, you know, five days at 2000 and two days at 3000, that the 2000 days I'd be like just getting through and the 3000 days I'd be super fucking excited about. And it would be this cycle of like pissed off, excited, pissed off, excited. Um, but that doesn't mean it can't be a good strategy for you. And it doesn't mean it can't increase adherence for some people. It totally can. I'm just going to wait and see how I do with static calories. Um, and I will kind of lean into some of those moments. I want more food and then lean into, you know, occasional days where maybe I'm a little bit less hungry and I want to go lower. And so I will start with static calories, but I will be flexible on both ends of that for sure. Uh, at what point will, will you lower calories? Well, I think it's more importantly that you don't just lower calories willy nilly. You willy nilly. Um, I will consider lowering calories about every 14 days of perfect adherence. Like, like people are like, ah, my weight hasn't gone down for 14 days. I'm like, have you hit your calories and your steps and your workouts and your protein and your sleep? And they're like, no, not really. It's like, okay, well, we're not lowering calories until you're actually doing what you need to be doing. So 14 days of hitting my protein steps, you know, uh, uh, calories, sleep, you know, things all check out where I think I should, you know, if I was truly in a deficit making progress and I'm not, then I will consider lowering calories. And I say consider because you also have to take into account how you feel. Do you feel good enough to trade away some calories away, to trade away some calories? Like people are like, yeah, you know, fat loss is stalled. Like I'll just go lower calories. Like, yeah, mathematically that will work totally. But do you feel like you're in a place to trade calories away because you have another option of just taking a break and going up to maintenance for a bit and coming back? And so you really got to earn lowering calories. You got to hit your calories 14 days, hit your steps, hit your protein, get your workouts in, but then also be honest if you feel good enough to trade away calories. So I'll look at that on a 14-day scale, um, but I'm going to be honest with myself. If I'm not doing what I need to be doing, then then I don't deserve to even consider lowering my calories. Next question, how will your training change at all? Um, less, than, less than you think. Uh, I'd say two things will change. I will bring down my top end volume. So in those final weeks before a deload, when I might have a slightly higher volume week, I probably won't do that or I'll be a bit more selective. So for those of you guys who are familiar, like your volume should probably go up a little bit across a mesocycle as you start to adapt to a certain amount of work. 
But if you're in a surplus, it's very likely that your top end volume that you can handle is higher than where it is in a deficit. So where I might've been doing 16 sets for chest in my final week before a deload, I don't know, that's probably, if I was in a surplus, I'll probably bring it down to, you know, 12 to 14 or something like that. Um, and second, you know, I will have less expectation of rate of strength gain, but that doesn't mean I'm not gonna get stronger. I still should be getting stronger. And the truth is, you know, you should be leaving a rep or two in the tank on your first week so that you actually leave room for yourself to do more. That doesn't mean you are getting stronger, but you're doing more week to week. And so this idea of like, oh, when I'm in a, when I'm in a deficit, I shouldn't even try to beat myself week to week. No, you absolutely should. Is it going to happen every single week? No. Is it going to happen every single week no matter what? No. But is it going to happen, should you lower your expectation of it happening every week when you go into a deficit? Yeah, probably. For sure. Um, for sure. But yeah, again, at the end of the day, if you leave two or three reps in reserve in the first week, like you probably should, you should still be able to beat that at least for several weeks until you hit some some sort of a wall. Um, but yeah, I'm going to be more okay with matching week to week and happier when I beat. But yeah, still that's going to be the intent. Um, cool. What's your exit strategy and what are you going to do after? Last question. My exit strategy will be a reverse diet. The Now reverse diet is just some fucking fancy word for get the hell out of a deficit and get your butt up to maintenance. And so you don't need to do it slow. Physiologically, you probably shouldn't. Your diet's done, get to maintenance. Now, you have a new maintenance now because you are lighter and you have slightly suppressed metabolism from your neat being just slightly metabolically adapted. And so I would estimate your new maintenance and I would jump 75% of the way there. And then from there, I might go slow until I feel like I've hit a good spot and I see body weight start to go up a little bit, maybe I'll peel back. And so what I would do is I would estimate your new maintenance at your new body weight with your activity levels and then I would probably jump about 75% of the way there. And then maybe you can do something like 100 calories a day added per week um, until you get to a place where you feel like you're at maintenance. And that's a conversation for another day. And what am I gonna do after? I will stay at maintenance for at least half the time I was in a deficit. So if I do a deficit for 12 weeks, I will stay at maintenance for at least six weeks. And people talk about diet breaks being good for metabolic adaptation. I don't believe they are, but because they're not long enough, but maintenance phases, Maintenance phase, spending a long time at maintenance. Now that can have a meaningful effect on getting your hunger hormones, uh, your satiety signals, um, your NEAT back up, your food focus back down. It can kind of uh, reverse some of those feelings of diet fatigue. So I will spend a long time, at least half the amount of time I was in a deficit at maintenance, and then I'll reassess. I know personally, I'll probably be done after one cut. I'm not, this isn't something where I'm, I'm not trying to get super lean. Um, I'm probably trying to go from about 211 to around 200 and then probably get back to gaining or maybe just hang out there. I'm not really sure yet. So, you know, the difference, the, the, I don't want to spend too much time cutting. I do want to spend, like, the, the, the thing standing between you and the body you want isn't how you do on your next cut. It's likely several years of lifting hard, not in a deficit. And for many of you, it means actually gaining some weight. So this idea of, like, oh, I'm going to cut, then I'll stay at maintenance, then I'll cut again, then I'll go to maintenance, then I'll cut again. It's like, yeah, okay, fine, but, like, you also need more muscle and that shit takes way more time. It takes way more food. It takes way more hard training. Not way more, but uh, it, it is more important, obviously, for muscle gain. Um, and so I will, I, I want to be spending as little time in my life in a deficit as possible. And if your goal is building muscle and I'm not even, I'm not even looking to get that much bigger or anything. It's not even like I have these crazy aspirational muscle building goals. But if you do, if your goal is building muscle right now, which is awesome, shit, don't spend forever in a deficit. I feel like that should be self-explanatory. The thing standing between you and the body you want isn't your next cut. It's years of not cutting 
and lifting. Like, years of eating and training. Um, cool. All right, guys. Uh, coming up on an hour and three minutes here. I appreciate you guys listening. Listen, I'm not you. There was a lot of word vomit there. Um, I really hope some of that was helpful. And, you know, again, it's tough. I don't want you to replicate exactly what I'm doing, but I hope kind of, you know, listening to me walk myself through some of those questions can help you work through your own situation. And if you ever have a question about setting your calories a little bit more aggressive, a little more conservative, think about the pros and cons of each. Think about the trade-offs. Everything is a trade-off. Everything is a value judgment. Everything is a cost-benefit ratio. Dieting more aggressively, you get faster progress, but you're more uncomfortable. Dieting more conservatively, you get less fat loss, but you're more comfortable. Like, you know, static calories versus calorie cycling. Calorie cycling, you get two high days, but you also get five low days. Like, does that is that a marriage that works for you? Like, everything is a trade-off. And when you start looking at, like, all of your decisions like that, weighing the pros and cons, and then making a decision based on what's important to you, you make better decisions and you often feel less bad about it because you know that it was done in a logical manner. Okay, guys. Thanks for listening. See you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.